They offered to pay her to have sex with the dog. Welcome back to Lustcast. Today we're diving into another disturbing porn site called Facial Abuse. An investigative journalist has been researching them for years, and what he found will shock you. You'll find it hard to believe that this could even be happening in America. But before we get into it, please like this video, remember to hit the subscribe button. And if you like my videos, you can now support me by joining the channel. It's $4.99 a month and you get access to bonus content and uncut and uncensored episodes. So back to facial abuse. I'm joined by Paul Mulholland, uh, the journalist that actually investigated them. How's it going, Paul? Uh, I'm doing well, Tommy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story because I heard of this company like maybe 10 years ago or something like that when I think it was Bell Knox, the kind of Ivy League um, porn star that was went viral. I looked up her videos out of curiosity and I was disturbed by it just and I think that was a scene that no problems were reported and I just remember thinking how does this even exist just from a moral point of view uh, yeah. the name of it like everything seems bad but yeah. obviously people say it's fantasy so you assume everything's okay so I guess just to kick things off can you give me some background on their company and also how you ended up investigating them? How did you get started on that? Sure. So um, I, I started on this. Honestly, I came across it just through ordinary porn consumption. There's no um, prouder way of saying it than that or a cleaner way. So I came uh -huh. across a, it was initially a, a Ghetto Gaggers video. It was the first one I had seen. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, the, it was called Angel. There was the, there was the staging of the actress. It's, I don't know how many years old. I actually was never able to contact her. I was never able to identify her, to find her. But there was just something something in the character of that scene that was you know, very different. It seemed um, like the distress wasn't acted, that it was very um, genuine, um, that the, like, the, the gagging, the signs of physical pain and discomfort uh, just seemed a little alarming to me. Like it wasn't theatrical. The actress, mm. like many porn actresses, are very young. They don't have any formal acting training, right? They're not coming from Hollywood to porn. Um, so I was like, I don't, it was just something in my intuition said, I don't think this is an act. And, yeah. um, at the time I was totally independent. So when you're an independent reporter, you have to find your own stories. I was like, I wonder if there's something to this. So I started, uh, watching more. I saw that they were, you know, affiliated with other brands such as facial abuse, facial abuse and ghetto gags being the main two. But for a long time, they also operated Latina abuse, um, which I think is defunct now. And they mm -hmm. also still operate uh, Black Payback and Black and Black Crime. The, the kinds of content in, across all these brands is more or less the same. It's just um, forceful oral sex, face fucking. Um, the last few years, it's mostly a, a focus on causing the actress to vomit as a result of uh, gagging her through face fucking. The mm -hmm. older videos, that wasn't the case. Like the one that Angel's in, that wasn't the case. It's an older video. It kind of took them a while, a process of self-radicalization, I'm sure, uh, to, to reach that point. Um, but I started watching more videos. Some were more alarming than others. And then, um, I just started doing some simple Google searches. I came across some of Felicity Feline's videos. I'm sure we'll talk about some of her YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I think there's something here. So I started making efforts to identify some of the actresses, started making phone calls, annotating a lot of scenes. And, uh, it took over two years to, to do this on my own. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad yeah. I did. Um, and yeah, so that, that's how I came across it. They're, the company is owned by a company called D&E Media. 
Um, I'm not sure what D and E stand for 100%, but I believe the D stands for um, Donald Mullenweider, um, who is one of the owners. And I believe the E is for Ernie Rossi, who I believe is the other one. I don't know that for a fact, but I be mm -hmm. believe they're the two owners, and that's what D and E stand for. And they're based in New Jersey in the United States. Um, so for a long time, their studio was based in East Orange, New Jersey. I believe their administrative offices are still there unless they've moved recently. Uh, I believe that the place where they film has actually moved to around the Trenton area, but I've been struggling to find out where it is because they mm. conceal its location from their models too. Um, are we at? And then Black and Black Crime and Black Payback are actually filmed on the West Coast, but under Dini, um, somewhere in California, I'm not sure where. And so they're pretty yeah. big if they've got several brands. Yeah. They are, especially for like a, a relatively independent company. Mm. I think they've been around since 2003-ish, give or take. Yeah, a long time, I think. Mm. Um, it's weird because, um, like you mentioned, puking in scenes. See, I didn't even think we were allowed to do that. I thought Visa and Mastercard regulated that kind of content. And like if I if I had content that had puking in it, I'm pretty sure the company processing payments for me would not let me not, not let me do it like uh is there a story behind that or, or do you know anything <laughs> about why they so, get away with things that i couldn't so i mean there might be like a jurisdictional question i'm not sure um it could just be an oversight i know when it comes to body fluids they're not the only people who do puke related content mm -hmm. still getting away with it somehow i know from my communications with Vaughn wider who's an occasional director and i think part owner um He's told me in the past that they, they just can't show blood. Um, mm. There was one concerning video that I called to his attention where the male model appeared to be ignoring consent withdrawal taps, and the director actually called a break. And I asked, and this isn't in the article because I couldn't contact the actress, and I, I asked him about it. I was like, why did the director call a break here? And he was like, oh, it's because... You know, she had some blood in her puke and we're not allowed to show that. And there's no visible blood in the pukes. I don't know what he was saying, but mm. for whatever reason, he says you can't show blood. But I guess puke is fine. I don't know where the, the guidelines are on that, to be honest. Yeah, it's strange. It, it always, one of the things that's always baffled me is how um, Visa and MasterCard set the rules for what content is allowed, but they don't explicitly say what content is allowed or not. They leave yeah. it to intermediaries to interpret what they think Visa and MasterCard will allow. And it seems they allow everything unless someone complains. Um, <laughs> That's my impression as well, yeah. <laughs> I don't um, think they monitor it is really what they don't. They don't um, they're not even a place. They don't have to a staff to like look at this content. Yeah. There's nothing, nowhere to report. And there's no, you know, they're trained in financial fraud, not in consent or anything like that is my yeah. impression. Um, so, can you tell me a bit more about like what kind of allegations there are like in a broad sense against um, D&E media? Well, but I think by this point, it's fair to say that the most like specific and concentrated allegations against them are now in, in my article about them. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, so the allegations made about them outside of my article are complicated because um, if in the article, I outline some of like the disinformation tactics that they use where they, They'll publish fake information about themselves and spread fake information about themselves mixed in with real information to try mm. to distract people. And this this prolonged my reporting by many months. It made the fact checking process a lot more annoying. It made me very paranoid about 
unsolicited emails and tips I got, um, especially when they mm. sent me things that I already knew was wrong. Um, so how this disinformation involves um, exaggerating the number of suicides that are associated with the studio in the hope that a reporter says that, you know, look at all these suicides. It's a way of um, discrediting accusations against them in advance. And so if you mm. go looking for information about them outside of my article, you'll actually find a lot of that still. Apart from that, um, the first thing I came across was um, or were Fel uh, Felicity Feline's YouTube videos, which mostly orients around actually their conduct um, off camera, what they're like outside the studio um, and the way they like bullied her and harassed her. Um, they own the rights to FelicityFeline.com. They have a fake blog about her there. Um, she's asked them many times to take it down. Um, this mostly starts from them wanting to start a pay site for her because she was one of their first big models. And she agreed verbally to do this and later backed out of it. And so as a way of just retaliating against her, it's just really petty and stupid. Um, they you know, kept the website. Um, they published like embarrassing things about her on it. Um, Felicity tells me they tried to, uh, they offered to pay her to have sex with a dog, which is an accusation she's made to me many times over a long period of time wow. in very consistent terms. And she's also, without getting into too, too much detail, she's made that accusation to people who I, would be very risky to lie to. And I, I won't put it any higher than that. Mm -hmm. um, so I believe her, frankly. Um, and so I came across those two YouTube videos. Outside of that, the accusations against them are kind of few and far between, uh, at least the credible ones. Um, so the, the accusations, I had to go looking for them. And Well, actually, there's one other one. That's Clara Bow, who's actually a named source in my story. Um, up to her scene, which I think was around 2010, um, she sustained a lot of injuries uh, to the face, especially she struggled to see straight for a day or two afterwards because um, she had injuries to her eyes from being slapped in the face. She mm. told me they, they, you know, ignored her consent multiple times. Around the time she actually did publish some social media posts, um, she said on uh, she did so on Tumblr, although I think the original Tumblr post is gone. But I've spoken to her about that as well as her then husband. And they both said, yeah, we published that around then. And they would harass us for months afterwards. Like her husband told me that I had to block multiple social media accounts. So they kept bothering me across various social media platforms. How um, were they harassing? Were they saying something specific or? Oh, just like calling them liars. I'm saying that they were making it up. Just, mm. just like pestering them. Um, mm. If you read Clara Bow's description, uh, of her scene, it's, it still has that tone. I could probably pull it up now. So do they harass models when, with Felicity, they harassed her because she spoke out against them? In part, yeah. Um, it started because, um, really, it, it sounds petty and stupid, but just because she backed out of a deal for a pay site. Mm -hmm. And um, they were just really, really salty about that. And so I, I came across that story. And I've, I've talked to Felicity multiple times. She was one of the more important sources for my story. But she's not in the sexual violence part of the story because um, she, you know, she tells me she knew what she knew what she was getting into. Mm -hmm. um, and so the harassment against her is actually really confusing, and I don't fully understand it. Um, I know I, I told Felicity, I think uh, Donald Wallenweider, his stage name is Duke Skywalker, that he must have just been in love with you at some point because it's just so weird and stalkerish. Um, and like it, it continues even now, right? They haven't taken anything down. Um, mm. and even when I, when I posted my initial article on Twitter and in that initial post, 
the only response that I've gotten from them, and the only way that I know for sure that they've read it, is that they started DMing people who um, commented on my initial tweet. So these mm. are, these are people who are strangers to me, right? Just people on Twitter who read the article, who commented something like "good job" or "thanks for doing this," and they would start DMing them from their Latina abuse Twitter account. Mm-hmm. I know there's at least a few people that they did this too, and they would send a pre-shoot interview with Felicity Feline, in which she says things like, "Oh, like I know what I'm getting into, right?" They they warn her a few times of various things, and that's for her first video. They have a second pre-shoot interview on FelicityFeline.com, which the similar warnings are repeated. I mentioned this in the article. But what's confusing about it is that I have four women in the article who accuse them of ignoring their consent and a Mm. fifth Felicity Feline who only accuses them of harassing them, Mm. of harassing her, that is. And their response to that is, no, we haven't harassed anyone, which is a really bizarre way to respond to the accusations in the articles. Not the way I would have thought about it. If someone accused me of ignoring the consent of four women and harassing a fifth, I would want to say more in my defense than, look, I haven't harassed anyone, right? You seem to be omitting the first Mm -hmm. four accusations, as well as not really addressing the accusations that Felicity made about you. Um, So their their response to the article has been much weaker than I anticipated. Um, And nothing's been directed at me, which is also surprising. I thought for sure Mm -hmm. they would be doing something to bother me, but they haven't. And it sounds like it's been a really difficult investigation if it's taken so long. Like, why do you think it was difficult to find victims to talk? So, you know, there's four, four sources in the story for the sexual violence section. I contacted, through various means, at least 20. Mm. Um, there were probably close to 100 that I wanted to contact. There's a, f- a few obstacles to getting um, women into the story. The first one is that for most of their modern scenes, they don't use stage names. They just name the scene and leave the stage name out. Tunes, I already have like a block. I have nothing to search for. So I mm-hmm. often have to look for other scenes in which they're in or try to do some like facial recognition stuff to find them. And then once you find them, now you have to find their legal name and then you have to find their phone number, right? It's, it's a very annoying process. And mm-hmm. then you may spend a week trying to contact someone, finally get them, and then they don't want to comment on the story. So that was that was... The main thing was identifying them. After that, the the stigma of having been a porn star is very high for some, and the stigma of having been, you know, uh, potentially sexually assaulted on camera is also very high. Mm-hmm. And that last part, the stigma was an, an extreme, ob- probably the main obstacle to getting sources to comment. Um, there were women who just flat out refused to talk. Um, there were some who, you know, blocked me on social media after I, I DM'd them on Instagram or Facebook, just introducing myself, I'm an investigative reporter. I didn't mention porn in the DM. I would just say I'm investigating a studio, or sometimes I would say mm-hmm. I'm investigating a New, New Jersey-based business that I believe you used to be employed by, etc. Um, some women just flat out denied their identity. I would call them and say, "Is this such and such?" And it's like, "Yeah, this is she." And I would say, "Yeah, I'm investigating a New, New Jersey-based business." And like, "Oh no, you have the wrong number." Um, that happened many times, and so the the, the force of thing was very powerful in this industry and it it made this investigation much harder and so i'm very grateful to the four women who did agree to talk to me mm-hmm. um they're you know clearly very courageous for having done so and it's um it, it you couldn't have exposed them without them speaking up right and so it, it's Cross. but f- it's not limited to four there could have been many more i'm sure i'm sure there could have been much more than four yeah like i have personal experience of this more from the inside um and I think the only reason people spoke to me is because I'm also 
a porn producer. And, you know, even then I only had, you know, about, I think it's four or five girls speak publicly. And, but my DMs are lit up with so many, um, like, you know, me too, you know, this happened to me, that happened to me, but I'm scared of talking. Um, yeah. And there's various reasons for that. Like mostly it seems fear of like ramifications, like uh, their career. Yeah. Um, the ones that have quit porn, it's like, this is behind me now. And they kind of don't want to remember their time. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's various reasons. You said that you were also kind of like this misinformation thing during your investigation. Like that fascinates me. Yeah. Um, me do too. you think that's, do you think that's deliberate or do you think that's a strategy they've come across by accident? Like, cause could it just be they're marketing themselves? Like, cause they're called facial abuse. Yeah. So obviously they want people to think these women are really being abused. Right. Um, uh, that's so the... like, cause I, I remember seeing like breakdown videos on different websites where they're using girls crying, where they're like bullying them verbally mm -hmm. and the girls emotionally breaking down. I was never sure if that's real or acting. Right. Um, it's, so it's... I wasn't sure if like the the misinformation is marketing. That's, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I believe that it's very deliberate. Um, in the article, I talk about, um, a text message that Volumider mm -hmm. sent me. This was in 2022. And we, we were talking about some of the blogs he published and he says, quote, um, you have to ask yourself how much information is out there that I've purposefully seeded in the hopes that someone cites it as fact. So that's wow. a verbatim quote that he, he told me. Um, cause we so had dark. many long text conversations about all kinds of topics. Um, and the reason why I put up with him for so long is because every few months he would give me a gem like that. He would say something that he should not have said. Um, and that's, that might be the main one. Mm -hmm. uh, but he acknowledged to me in another case that he was operating a fake blog. Um, he's made a fake blog about me. You can look up palmholland.com as of yeah, yesterday, he's still that. there. It's... You were the one who called that to my attention initially. Yeah. Um, Facialabuse.com is another fake blog about me and a civilian researcher named Alex Barber, who's helped me here and there, um, where they just make stuff up about me. They mm. say I was a participant in the January 6th riot, that I that I work for facial abuse, um, and that I'm only calling models to like surveil them or stalk them, that I'm a porn addict and I just want to be friends with cam girls. Just really like bizarre stuff that they're just making up out of the blue. Mm. That's not that's not an accident, right? They do that to discredit me, to make it harder for me to get sources. Um, I know other blogs that I identified in the piece, such as I think it's uh, abuseisnotporn.com um, and shutdownabuseporn.org, I believe, are both operated by them. Um, hmm. And the, the purpose of doing this, and this had some effectiveness on me, is to get reporters to focus on things that are not true. Um, and so I document how these blogs evolve over time. So there's one instance in which they publish a blog in which they say that Ernie Rossi, who is their main recruiter, their main copyright enforcer, and I believe a part owner, is is drugging women and having sex with them on as related to their porn. To be clear, I have no evidence at all that Ernie Rossi has ever done that. That's something they yeah. say about themselves to mislead reporters. After one source of my story, Bailey Ray, who tells me that she was high on heroin at the time she did the shoot, among other things. We can probably talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, she started emailing them, asking them to take the website down. Three months after they emailed, she emailed them. They take this blog about drugging models down because now it's no longer disinformation. Now it's a real lead that could actually point a reporter in the right direction. So now it has to come down, right? The purpose of these blogs is to waste people's time 
um, and also to expose reporters to defamation risk. Because if you publish that, that Ernie Rossi has drugged women and had sex with them, which again, I have no evidence of, then he could sue you for defamation and now you're, you're, all of your reporting is discredited. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's definitely a deliberate strategy that they do to, to lead people astray and waste their time. And it, it did waste a lot of my time. I said I probably spent months longer on this investigation than I should have. Is this like, is this normal for reporters to come up against? Because <laughs> I mean, it's a very smart tactic and it, I, like, yeah, it worked. Is it like a deliberate strategy that other businesses or other people use? Or is so, this the first time? I've never heard of it before. So. so I've only heard of it in one other context. Um, and that's in like state level disinformation. So sometimes Russia, the United States will leak things that are, have misinformation mixed with real information just to, yeah. just so the foreign intelligence services no longer know what's true or they begin to doubt things that are true and et cetera. Um, I believe that's where Volan Weider, who does most of this stuff, picked that up. I know he's listed hobbies of his as being like co-intel pro. Uh, he said on a podcast many years ago that he used to be employed as a private investigator. So I think he fancies himself like as a counterintelligence mm -hmm. agent, and that's probably where he picked the idea up. That's speculation. Um, but I, as a reporter, just on my own story, speaking to colleagues, I've never seen someone defame themselves as a preemptive disinformation strategy. That is unusual. I've never even heard of anyone doing that before. I haven't either um but i could relate to so much of what you were saying just so much because the thing i came up against most was kind mm -hmm. of um the producers discrediting the girls early like oh she's crazy she's got mental health problems yes yeah. this Th that they do that too um and then also there's kind of three companies who are known for being abusive but they all hate each other and so there's so much so many lies they're all telling about each other that it effectively works the same way as the yeah. disinformation that you came up against. And I was finding it really hard to find out what was true and what was a lie put out by their rival. And it, it yeah, slowed me down so much. And without, you know, having girls' phone numbers, I wouldn't have been able to separate fact from fiction. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to talk more about this. I should have watched more of your episodes. Uh, no, really no, interesting. no I, you did a much better job, believe me. It was like so thorough when I was reading your article. I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe I can uh, be of some assistance. That sounds interesting. Yeah, right. I just like when you were saying about it, it's like, yeah, I remember like talking when we talked, it was like, it was like, oh, you know, I didn't feel so alone on it because I was like, okay, it's not just me coming up against this. Mm, yeah. Um, just these weird walls of silence that you get. Yeah. And, you know, like you've, you, you work in other industries as well. Like you report on all sorts of things. It, has this been different to reporting on other sto other difficult stories? Yes. Um, in, so, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. A lot of my other, like this is the largest investigative piece I've done independently. A lot of hmm. the other stuff I've done in the past it was either video work or investigations on like police brutality or like housing issues, like abusive, um, like housing, um, like, in, like institutional, like commercial landlords. Um hmm. So this this was different in that it had like a, a sexual element to it um, in, in the amount of time that it took that I was in communication with the subjects of the investigation, which I prefer not to do until the end, or you're supposed to start on the outside and work in. This mm -hmm. way, by the time you interview the subjects, you, you know what to ask them and you know what to lie already so you can evaluate their honesty better. But they mm -hmm. found out about my investigation very early and I outlined that in the piece, how they did that. So yeah. I have a blog... 
that in which they defame themselves. And then at the bottom, they have a, you know, questions and comments, send an email here kind of thing. And me being new to the investigation, not knowing that this kind of thing was possible. I emailed that email thinking it was just mm-hmm. an activist, right? I was like, oh, I'll reach out to this guy, see what he has. We can compare notes. That was on February 2nd, 2021. On um, February 9th, 2021, Donald Vollenweider on his personal Twitter account, which no longer exists. Um, this is, this was at Duke Skywalker back in the day. He changes profile picture on Twitter to a picture of me. Mm. So this is only seven days after. Um, so that's when we started talking on Twitter. So he found out about me earlier than I would have liked. Um, but when I asked him, uh, like how we found out so quickly, he told me that your, your, the models that you've been reaching out to told me about you, that lots mm-hmm. of them reached out to me and said, you know, Paul's this and that, whatever he, he reached out. Is this guy real? And so that's how he found out. So I went back I take, I document the people who I call very closely. Like I'll write down the date I call them, the time I call them just to kind of keep my interview straight. So I went back through my call logs and by, by February 9th, when he found out about me for sure, I'd only called one model and that was Felicity Feline. Mm-hmm. So when he says many, right, that's certainly a lie, right? It, it was supposed to get me to not trust my sources. Like, oh, my models are yeah. switching on me when they're not, right? It was just one. He just made it up. Um, and yeah. So the last like two years of the investigation, I was doing it while he knew I was investigating him. And that was a different experience. Normally that's not the case. Yeah. Was it emotionally difficult? So the content is in some places. The section I have on suicide, which Mm -hmm. I discuss the the suicidal um, thoughts and ideations of some of my sources. One source who um, tried to kill herself. And then another source, well, another woman who did kill herself. And I describe why I think it might be related to the content. Uh, but I, I can't, I have no evidence, direct evidence that they've caused anyone to die of suicide. Yeah. yeah. Um, that section was very hard for me to write. Um, it was it was the last section I wrote. It's, just, it's the second section in the article, but it's the last one I wrote because I was dreading to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that way, yes, yeah, some of the content was hard to write. Listen, when I was finalizing the draft i would listen back through the phone calls to get quotes in part just to make sure that i was contextualizing the quotes properly but then like listening them listening to those quotes in their voice was harder than reading it in my head Mm. and so when i was listening to those quotes again that was very hard because by then i had all the context and i tried to convey some of that in the article in my quote selection when i when a a when a source was speaking through tears, I made sure to note that so that the reader understood that they, they weren't speaking to me the way I'm speaking to you now, right? They were very upset about what happened. They they dreaded speaking with me, and I am very grateful that they did anyway. Mm. So that was emotionally taxing at times. The retaliation against me was not. Frankly, it was very flattering that they considered me so much of a threat that they would do this. It was a lot of like roller coaster adrenaline. It was it was it was exciting. Um, mm-hmm. um it was a, it, that element was exciting and flattering and not emotionally taxing. I guess when they start attacking you, it feels like I'm onto something. Like I've yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a mistake because there was a couple of points in time where I put the story down. Um, after about a year, I was like, nobody's answering my phone calls except for Felicity, and I don't think this is going anywhere. But then they started publishing fake blogs about me over that summer, and I was like, well, they think there's something here. So I'm going to keep yeah. digging. And that was a huge mistake they made. It's, it's, I probably would have published something in any case, but there is a chance 
that I wouldn't have finished this story if they hadn't gone after me personally and signaled very strongly to me that I was onto something. Mm. Uh, that they may have been the single biggest mistake they they made in this process. It's so funny you say that because on my stories as well, they could have left it with one podcast. Um, yeah. But because I saw evidence of them silencing the girl that spoke on my podcast and they basically forced her to ask me to remove it, um, that blew everything up and just made me so determined. But I never would have looked if they didn't uh, make a reaction against me. Um, yeah. So it's interesting how they like motivate us, isn't it? <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it, the similarities just like blow my mind. Um, and like, can we go through some of like the like the case studies of the victims? Um, and I think one of the important things to remember is that, like me and you, when we talk to them, we see how hard it is for them to talk, and like even anonymously, it's very difficult for them to talk. Um, I've had girls that they wanted to talk, and then when it came to it, they couldn't do it. Like they physically couldn't, they were just crying too much. It was yeah. too emotionally traumatic and we just had to say stop. Um, and I don't think anyone listening will understand that. Um, well, well, yeah, frankly, great hopefully they don't, but yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just important to emphasize, I think. Uh, so it's like the courage it takes for these girls to have actually yeah. spoken to you because they have to relive their trauma. Mm -hmm. um, to a stranger, to someone they don't know, yeah. and knowing there could be consequences for them. Yeah. Um, whether legal consequences or defamation, uh, sorry, like uh, threats or who knows what. Um, so yeah, could you tell us like, a bit about each girl's experience? Sure. Um, so I have the article open. The, the points you make on the difficulty with speaking um, or the potential for re-traumatizing is, is absolutely correct. When I was writing many sections of this, I, I, I knew that many of these quotes would have a high potential to re-traumatize readers. I tried to be very generous with content warnings. Some of these, some of these things are hard to read. Um, the first source was an unnamed source. Um, I refer to her as Anna, just so I have a name for her. It took me over a year to get an interview with her. It was about a year and a half. So she, I became aware of her earlier, early in 2022 like the early winter months of 2022. I didn't get an interview with her until last month, June. Mm. So we had been talking through Twitter for over a year, back and forth. She gave me some useful details, but she would often uh, go quiet for a while or decline to do a phone call. And the reason for that is because, frankly, the, the scene really, really hurt her psychologically. She's still, in, in, in my judgment, very... Um, hurt by it um a, ch a changed person because of it mm -hmm. and it was it was very hard to get her on the phone her career took a big hit she couldn't film for a long time i know one reason why she couldn't call me is she was struggling with money to the point where she had like she didn't have minutes to call me right um so we, we could we couldn't do an interview because she didn't have you know there's no pay phone how is she going to call me mm -hmm. um and so that, that was that was difficult uh, i had to have a lot lot of patience with her and build her trust over time. And I'm very grateful that she, she came to trust me. But even now, after the story's published, she gave me very limited feedback on it. I suspect she didn't read it very closely because it's probably very hard for her to read. Um, she, you know, now we, we did an interview that lasted for an hour. We, we texted a lot on Twitter for months. But when I text her now, she doesn't really respond. And I get the sense that she, she just doesn't want to talk to me because I'm part of, now I, I'm part of her, like, Re, 
traumatization. And I hate mm. to say that, but I suspect that's what it is. That when she thinks of me, she thinks of the article, and when she thinks of the article, she thinks of the scene. And she's just so shattered by it that um, I know the people at Exodus Cry mentioned to me that they offer free therapy services for mm -hmm. people who have experienced sexual violence. I call this their attention. She declined it. Frankly, of all my sources, I think she needs it the most. Um, and, you know, I uh, Anna, I think very highly of her. She's um, very intelligent, very insightful. She was, in the end, very cooperative. Um, I, I, to say that I, I feel bad for her, is, it, it doesn't even touch it. Um, she, I don't know. She Like a lot of my sources, she was just like a, a decent person. And yeah. to know that she was just hurt so badly uh, by this, it, that... Um, and she, she didn't want to speak under her own name just because she kind of wants it behind her, um, which I understand. And she also was very fearful of retaliation. She was aware of what happened to Felicity. Um, sorry, I forgot what your initial question is. Um, their difficulty um, in speaking. Yeah, so the difficulty for her was that is it was just, it, it did a lot of damage to her. So it took me over a year to get her on the phone. Um... Her part of the article, many of her consent withdrawal taps were ignored. Um, she was injured very severely. She she told me that she couldn't put a t-shirt on for several days afterward um, because her shoulders were so injured. They put her in a position Jesus. where they, they grab your wrists and pull them behind your back and then put mm -hmm. the person who's standing behind you puts his foot in between your shoulder blades. And this is while you're being face-fucked. So in this position, it's anatomically impossible to withdraw consent based on their methods because you can't mm -hmm. speak and you can't move your hands. And this position also it, it hurt her shoulders very badly. She said she struggled to walk um, for several days after. She said it was a car going to the bathroom. She had bruising all over her body. She, she showed me pictures of that that are time-stamped appropriately. There was, I think, like this either the same day or a day or two after. Mm -hmm. Um the psycholo psychological damage I think I've outlined already. Some of the quotes. Um, let's see. She says, I kept tapping him and he wouldn't let me up. I literally dug my nails into his thighs and drew blood until he fucking let me up so I could breathe. I started hitting him and he still wasn't letting me up. Those are quotes from her that's visible in her scene. Mm -hmm. um, she puts her hands up to protect herself from slaps to the face, which she asked not. She tells me she asked not to be slapped in the face hard. Um, the male performer, whose legal name is Michael Sims. Uh, I don't know, know if he uses a stage name, honestly. If he does, I don't know what it is. Tells her to put her hands down. Um, he threatens her and says, get your hands off me or I'll fucking slap the shit out of you. Which is a, a very problematic threat because if she's gagged uh, with a penis, the only way she can withdraw consent is by slapping him, which requires okay. her to put her hands on him. So she really, he really should not be threatening her um, when he does that. Yeah. Um and just throughout the scene, she often has a very panicked look in her face. Um, she tells me, um, after the scene, I wanted to fucking kill myself. Um, she says, I feel like that stuff is so traumatizing. It's hard to get out of your head. I would not be surprised if girls kill themselves because of the trauma from that. Um, it sounds yeah. like, um, like there's going to be two groups of people that are listening to this, I think. There's going to be like the very open-minded people who maybe practice BDSM in their private lives, who might think, well, she consented at the beginning, so it's fine. But like the treatment you describe, 
it, it doesn't sound like something that you can consent to. Like, even if you do consent to it, um, like, I, I don't, I think consent needs to be constant in a situation like that where it's extreme. Yeah. Um, it can't be just like, okay, she agreed, so we're doing it. And I think that's maybe often what's missed in these situations, um, that it it sounds like just domestic violence. It doesn't sound like porn, and it doesn't seem to resemble any sexual activity. I mean, it doesn't make sense even. You can say you're making a film, but you don't need to do things for real in a film. So if anything, the treatment in a porn movie should be more gentle than what it would be in BDSM in real life because the viewer can't tell the difference between special effects yeah. and um, between acting and, and not acting. Yeah. So, so for me, that's like the key. But I don't know, they hide behind, oh, it was consensual. She signed a form. She. Yeah, so um, when, when she signed a form up front, um, that like upfront consent, one, for one, it can be withdrawn. You can change your mind, and then the other yeah, person absolutely. has to respect the fact that you've changed your mind. But the other thing is that she initially consented under certain parameters. First is that she wouldn't be slapped in the face very hard, which they didn't do, right? They slapped her in the face quite hard the whole time. That's the main thing. She also told me in her interview that she asked not to have the dog bowl poured on her head. So for those who are unfamiliar with the facial abuses content, the vomit that results from the scene, as well as a lot of the, the piss that results from the scene, because they often urinate on the models, they collect this in a dog bowl, which I think they're called the horror bowl, something like that. At the end of the scene, they, they pour it on the model's head. This is part of the like, humiliation, dehumanization of it. Mm-hmm. He tells me at the beginning that she explicitly asked them not to do that. And they, they tell her during the pre-shoot interview, like, no, you have to do that. Right? Everyone does this. And then at the end, when her eyes are closed, they start pouring it on her. And she, she says no, and she she shivers. And they keep doing it. And eventually she just says, oh, just fucking do it. Like, just, just do it. Right? So this yeah. is actually an inverse case of someone not consenting initially, realizing it's probably just going to happen anyway, and then appearing to, like, verbally give consent. And that's actually not outlined in the article, in part because that quote, just fucking do it, is potentially problematic for its inclusion. So um, actually, legally, um, that's not consent. So that's yeah. called acquiescence. I, uh, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, the thing doing these stories, I've learned so much about consent and the different forms of consent. And um, and in hindsight, perhaps that anecdote does belong in the article, but I was, I was mm. concerned about including it initially. Um, the primary source for acquiescence is actually the fourth source, which is Rachel, the other unnamed source. Mm. And that that section is basically all about acquiescence. Um, let me scroll down to her. So Rachel was 18 years old. Again, a fake name. Did you um, find any pattern with the girls that generally do this type of porn? Because I, I you said earlier that they don't tend to name the girls with their stage name anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's been a long time since I saw any like recognizable porn stars on there. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if that's because they're trying to make it look more amateur than it is, or if it's because mainstream porn won't have anything to do with them anymore. And they have to recruit perhaps maybe more vulnerable women because the quality of the girls that are on there, that they didn't look like porn models to me. A lot of them, a lot of them yeah. look like maybe they were like, you know, street prostitutes and things like that now that's so, not to be yeah. derogatory to street prostitutes but just no, it seems like maybe they're targeting 
vulnerable women or making it appear that way. I don't know. So many of their models are um, first timers, um, women who may be kind of established in the industry, but really in the recent years, they have had some bigger names. I believe like Mandy Muse shot with them a few years ago. Um, my understanding is that they tend to treat bigger names uh, better. They give them more thorough warnings. They don't go as hard on them. Um, this is primarily insights from watching some of these scenes. Um, there's another actress. Her, I think her stage name, her last name is Adam. She's a, she's a redhead. I forget her first name. She shot with them. Um, your porn and foreign viewers probably know who I'm talking about. Um, but then, yeah, then they, a lot of, like, Rachel only shot one scene ever. It was official beast, at least one that I know of. No one would know who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bailey Ray, who's the source who was high on heroin at the time, that was her first and last scene. So th- this is relatively common where they just kind of recruit women who are sex workers that may have come from escorting. Like I know one way actually where I, I identified some sources was I found them through escorting websites um, where they had mm-hmm. contact information. And so these are women who were just kind of struggling to get into sex work in some way. OnlyFans, porn, escorting. And they saw facial abuse as part of that process to, to the extent that they understood what the content was, which in some cases was very little. And so you're right. Generally, they don't book big names. The reason for not including the names, frankly, I'm not 100% sure why they do that. I did ask Wallenweider about it. He tells me it's to reduce um, piracy and copyright infringement. I don't see how that's the case. Um, There's a very, very large and healthy piracy community for facial abuse content. It's a very, very, very lively um, database um, everywhere on, on their scenes. It's very easy to acquire pirated content of, of facial abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what he tells me. Apparently, it makes it harder if you don't include the woman's stage. It does make it does make it harder. To be fair to him, um, oh, well, maybe he's right then, because the 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 scenes still have names, and you just search for the name of the scene. Mm-hmm. But he says by excluding the name of the model. You make okay, it if he's naming the scene, the then it makes no difference. But yeah. And the girl that was high on heroin, was that... I'm not really a drugs expert, but is it visible in the video that she's on something? Or does heroin not work like that? I don't know. So I tried to get uh, some opioid experts on for the article to comment on that. I wasn't successful in doing that. To my untrained eye and ear, she appears delayed. There's like a glaze in her eyes. She doesn't respond very quickly or convincingly. Mm. Um, during the scene itself, she seems a little slow and lack of response. Over the course of the scene, she you can t- t- again to my untrained eye, she it seems like she's coming back online over the course of the scene. And by mm. the end of the scene, she's I think audibly more lucid than she was at the beginning. At the end, she calls them six fucks, six fucks. She said the scene was miserable and degrading, um, and she did not have that capacity of communication at the beginning, at least as far as I can detect. Um, Mm. but she says, um, that while she was signing the contract, she was nodding off and they had to keep waking her up so that she could sign it. Um, and then she tells me, this is a quote in the article. I think anybody with eyeballs could tell that I was high. Um, and she was, she, she's very clear about that. She was having, um, heroin withdrawal symptoms, but when she got there. And mm-hmm. she explains that the director, whose stage name is Jimmy Hooligan, I don't know his legal name, bought her heroin so that she could do the scene. Um, but then she gets to the studio and she's still high and they do the scene anyway. Um, 
She tells me that she she they never told her the name of the studio, that it was facial abuse. They told her they didn't tell her about the content. And the reason why her scene is so problematic, apart from the, the drug intoxication, is that essentially what happened to her is that she gets there. She doesn't appreciate how rough the scene is going to be. She can't really consent anyway because of her intoxication. And she says that if she left, if she just cut the scene, that they wouldn't have paid her. And so that's a, a problem because she had flown in from Florida to New Jersey. And she would have had trouble getting back to Florida if she wasn't paid. Mm. So in, in essence, she would have been potentially trapped in New Jersey for her who knows how long, right? Um, this is an industry problem for travel yeah. scenes. It's... So she, just to get back home, had to complete the scene that she had felt misled about and that she was high during. Um, and so that's, her case is unique in that it involves drug use. Um, mm. But it's not unique in the sense that she says she didn't know what the scene was going to be. Um, Clara Bow said she was taken off guard by how rough it was, though she was familiar with the brand. Um, Rachel, the source number four, said that she had no idea what she was getting into. Um, the quote is, I had no idea what I would be doing until I got there. And when I realized what I was going to be doing, I was too scared to say no, because I was the only female there surrounded by five men. So I was afraid of what they would do if I didn't follow through with my word. So this is a common theme of women just not knowing, like especially in their older videos, what, what the scene is going to be like. And this um, happens too often in porn for it to be a coincidence. I've heard this many times, even in Europe, that um, they're often a woman in a room with only other, other men, and they feel that they're not able to say no and are often not given information until the day it's um it, it's too common for it not to be a deliberate tactic i think are you i mean you might be right you would know better than me um i've i've gotten some indication from more recent sources that they've gotten like since i've started investigating them that they've gotten mm -hmm. a bit better than this uh at, at this point of informing models of what the scene is going to be like um i don't know if that's in response to my investigation it may very well be uh, so I don't know if this is something that they still have an issue with, but they definitely have. Um, I, I suspect what it may have been. I know Volenweiter often told me that it was it was very hard to to book models, and I think it would have been harder if they knew what it was. And, and I think that may have been why he tried to conceal it. In in any case, um, multiple sources insist that they had no idea what the scene was going to be like, and that they yeah, or that they I, even knew the name of the studio. I was going to say I wonder how many know the name of the website because, um, you know. They're probably just told, oh, it's DNE. Uh, yeah. Well, they've got, sorry, I forgot the name. DNE Media. Media. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I, I've struggled to get some of their um, like licensing and business registration documents in New Jersey. But from what I can tell, what they say on their uh, registration docs in the state of New Jersey is that they're a media company for the purpose of shooting commercials. I don't believe they shoot any commercials. Um, if they do, it's only ancillary to the core of their business. So I don't know if they're concealing um, that from New Jersey. It's possible I'm misreading it. That um. this is for their bank, probably. It's, it's not, yeah. It, one of the horrible things about porn is the financial discrimination we face. Um, and so often you have to pretend your business does something slightly different, um, rather than you can't just say, "Oh, it's a porn company," because you won't be able to open a bank account. Right. So, That's interesting. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so I, I don't think there's anything nefarious in that. I, I wouldn't have thought. But, you know, doesn't hurt to have a look. Um, 
I definitely want to describe them as a commercial company or commercial producing company. Yeah, but it's true. You know, if how can any of the scenes be consent consensual if the girl doesn't know she's going to be working for a site called Facial Abuse? Because yeah. once you know the name of the site, you might withdraw your consent. But on the yeah. day, yeah, it's an issue you can't of, do it because it's yeah. not. Yeah, that there's because it's like how you're going to be portrayed. No, I, I agree. I think that's right. So yeah, because the you know, humiliation can be part of sex and an enjoyable part of sex, but if it's not enjoyable for you, you might not yeah. want it. And so yeah, it's like I think one one of the points I tried to illustrate in the article, especially by referencing Kink's code of conduct, mm -hmm. is that um, a lot of you know my allies in distribution for this article are anti-porn to varying degrees. Some think it should be banned or restricted legally in other ways. I I agree with them in some places, but for the most part, I, I certainly disagree. I don't think porn should be banned. And so by including some of these references, it's a way of illustrating that perhaps it would have been possible to do content of this kind in a consensual way, that you could mm -hmm. have uh, done puke blowjob porn in a way that was above ground. You probably would have had to pay people a lot. You would have had to inform them a lot of the risk of injuries and had a lot more safety protocols than they had. The, the point of including King's Code of Conduct was that this is below even what the porn industry accepts. And that even if you believe that something like this could have been done consensually, it was not, in fact, done consensually in many cases. Mm. Yeah, like Kink have had some problems. They have, but yeah. in my opinion, they led the way with how um, more extreme content should be filmed, especially yeah. in terms of consent. Absolutely. I think when they do forced sex, they show the consent process as part of it. So it doesn't say so you're not getting off on a girl being forced you know she's not really being forced and right. i think that's an important distinction in the viewer's minds because it's a different yeah. way of enjoying it if you're enjoying a girl just flat out being abused with no context yeah i, I think that's much more problematic than a girl yeah. saying how much she likes that first and then doing it it also um it, it shows that they are aware in some degree on the effect that porn has in their audience and that when Absolutely. people believe that women really are being abused and getting off to it, that uh, this could have like a disturbing psychological effect on the viewer. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you assure them, it's like, no, this is theatrical, this is kink. I, I think that radicalizing effect is uh, mitigated severely. I mean, a lot, a lot of the elements in the code of conduct, I, I wish were more common, and in some cases were e even surprising. So there's one that has nothing to do with my reporting here. Well, actually, I suppose it does. In second thought, where they say that. Um, in a pre-shoot interview, you can't discuss sex acts they committed before the age of 18. And this is something that's common in many other suitors. Less, how old are you the first time you gave a BJ? Oh, I was 15. You know, um, and that's gross that they do that. This came from Visa and MasterCard again, I think. But yeah. the interpretation of what Visa and MasterCard want rather than explicitly from them. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a way of yeah, getting cause... around. It's, a, it's appealing to underage pedophilic fantasies, right? It's a way of 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 doing like a narrative child pornography without real child pornography and, and king's code of conduct to the credit prohibits mm -hmm. that kind of thing and I, that should be more common i it's there's, there's no place for listening to uh someone's uh sexual history in a porn video that involves their sexual history before they were 18. Mm, yeah we, we say that but i remember reading men's magazines growing up and they would always ask the models like oh when did you lose your virginity and um yeah yeah i guess that's what they were going for mm -hmm. um 
or I don't know, maybe the younger the girl says, the more edgy she sounds. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's not necessarily youth. I don't know. Yeah, I think but, I think it's partially a pedophilic fantasy, but it also could just be like, oh yeah, she's been sexual for so long, something like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, are there more girls' experiences to tell us about, or have we done them all? So, well, we discussed Anna in detail. Uh, Bailey Ray was the one, the heroin one. Yeah. Uh, Claire Bow. Uh, we haven't discussed in detail. She's the one who's done like the most self advocacy. I would say mm-hmm. she yeah, shot I saw her late... blog. I think yes, she she's published um, various things in her own name. Some of them have been taken down, um, and I haven't been able to recover. Uh, the physical injuries she endured were really hard. Um, she's probably the most explicit in terms of how they ignored her consent. So mm-hmm. she her understanding was that a, a tap to the leg would signal an immediate stop. So. She says, speaking of Paul Kreiskook, who's the former male model of Deanese, she says, I tapped his thighs because I couldn't breathe anymore and he didn't care. I act- he actually grabbed the back of my head and pulled me closer. And I had to, from kneeling, push on his thighs, get my feet, feet underneath me, and literally launch my entire body weight backward to get off him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's visible in the final cut. Um, and what, what struck me about this quote and why it's in the article is because it, the level of specificity and it is is really really striking to me that she says so she's kneeling she says she has to push on his thighs to get like you can imagine someone on their knees and having to like shuffle the joints in their legs to get their feet underneath them as opposed to the knees underneath them and then using their body weight to push somebody off of them and mm-hmm. again apart from being in the video the specificity of that memory is uh, again it's it's important for the reader to to hear that but it's also it's, it's the kind of thing that strikes me as something that's hard to invent um, and it, it just, I don't know it's, it's a visual that, that last lasted with me for a long time. Uh, Clara Bow, like all my sources, uh, was very intelligent, um, very articulate. Um, let's see. She had also shot, um, she probably did more scenes than any of my other sources. She was like an established porn star for some time. Mm-hmm. She says, um, so she did BDSM for other studios. Uh, So she told me, when you say BDSM, you have an idea that like, okay, it's going to look rough, but the second you stop, it stops. And that is not the way it was with facial abuse. Again, emphasizing that perhaps you could have done this consensually, but it wasn't. Um, Like a lot of my sources, she holds them in very low regard. She told me um, they would not have cared if I died. They would have left me outside an emergency room and not giving a shit. Uh, That's how awful they are. Um. Says Clara Bow. Um, do you think that it's the performer's fault, or do you think the directors are telling the performer to? Because obviously, only one person's yeah. inflicting this. So, is it just they're protecting their friend, the performer, or? So, I, from from my research, that kind of varies from shoot to shoot. I know in Anna's scene, she tells me that the director told the models to like disregard her consent withdrawal taps. Wow. Um, and she says that a few months after her shoot that uh, Volenweider called a mutual friend of theirs and asked to speak with Anna. And he told her that I fired that director. Like, that's not what we do here. He invited her to come back for a second scene. And she said, no. Mm. Um, I asked Volenweider if he had, in fact, hired fired a director recently. And he, he denied having fired a director. So I, I don't know if he did. But I could say I, I I recognize that director's voice, 
and he hasn't been in any recent shoots, so it's possibly mm. he was. But the thing is, is that um, Michael Sims, the performer, and he was performing with uh, David Horder, who um, goes by the stage name Bootleg. Uh, Sims, I think, pretty flagrantly ignores some uh, consent uh, withdrawal methods. Um, whether he did this at the director's urging, I think, is of no difference to me. He's the one who's responsible for what he did. He didn't have a gun to his head. Um, so there's there's plenty of responsibility to go around from ownership mm. to direction um, to the male models themselves, for sure. I guess in my head, I'm thinking, are they doing this because it makes money? Or are they doing this because they enjoy it themselves? So I you know, have limited insight into what their motives are. They do make a lot of money. Bowen White is very well off. Um, I visited his residence in New Jersey to try to get an interview. He wasn't home. He has, mm. he has quite a nice house in New Jersey. He owns a, uh, a fishing cabin in New Hampshire. He's, 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 got, he's been a very well compensated for his ownership of facial abuse. Um, so money, I'm sure, is part of it. I think um, they do also get a lot of pleasure of it. Like in, in, Unlike many other uh, studios, Volnweider often participates in these scenes himself. Earlier, very early in their uh, lifespan, he would participate in the scenes directly. Like he would do do the face fucking. Later mm-hmm. on, he he only uh, urinates on models. Uh, he seems to really like that. Um, um, so he would he would come back from around the camera, urinate on them, and then go back behind the camera. Mm. Um, so I think he he gets off to it on a degree too. I think there's an element of personal enjoyment. For him that this is this is also his fantasy and he's not just appealing to other people's fantasies for money yeah i think he's the one i've heard emotionally abusing the girls the most yeah yeah absolutely um that's probably the most one of the most important elements of rachel's story so volenweider repeatedly mocks rachel for having been uh raped as a minor in the video um, she tells me what really was the breaking point is when they started talking about how I got raped and they laughed at me and made me feel like I was nothing. Um, during the shoot, Volenweider, who directed the scene, repeatedly presses her to divulge more details on the sexual abuse she survived as a child. Uh, Volenweider asks her who had a larger penis, the man who raped her as a minor, or bootleg, uh, hoarder, the male performer who was having sex with her at the time. Uh, Rachel says to Volenweider at one point, please stop talking about it and appears to be crying. Volenweider responded with additional questions. He asked her what was worse, the scene they were filming or having been raped as a minor and what she would say to her rapist if you saw this video. Um, and th- this is like a really um, like breathtaking level of emotional abuse. And this um, was called to my attention initially by Felicity Feline. Other models have called it to my attention that they really didn't expect it. Some mm-hmm. of the uh, verbal abuse they levied at Clara Bow, I actually had to cut out of the article because it referenced members of her family that could potentially identify them. So there was a lot that could have gone in this article that was taken out because it could have identified models, but that's that's among them. Um, mocking an 18-year-old woman for having been raped as a minor repeatedly and continuing to do it after she asked you to stop and is crying about it, and then still doing it. Um, it's, it's just... it's it's and You really have to understand that this is real. It's not that she wasn't actually raped as a minor. And that they're just mm. pretending she was. She was. She admitted to me that she was, and that they mock her on this on video, and millions of people have seen this video. Um, and this really like upended her life. She told me um, before I knew it, basically my whole town saw the video, and they would walk around laughing at me and calling me disgusting. So I ended up moving to a whole new state, and I lost all my friends. Um, 
uh, this um, isn't something that I appreciated when I first started reporting on it. I thought this would all be physical abuse, but my sources kept calling to my attention, like, no, the verbal abuse is part of this too. We were, we were not adequately warned. In some cases we were told that, you know, we might say something inappropriate, but they weren't expected um, to have members of the family appeal to in Clara Bow's case, um, mm -hmm. or to have to be like re-traumatized on camera in Rachel's case. There was another source who I tried to speak with. Her stage name is Hestia May. Um, her, she saw three scenes with them. And she was a source who I came close to, including the article. Um, but I, I couldn't secure an interview with her because in large part, she didn't want to speak with me uh, for reasons that I think are similar to some of the other models. But in her third scene, from what I remember, um, she had admitted that she had been um, sexually assaulted by a family member on a Ferris wheel. And in her third scene, Fallen Wider, who has clearly a habit and a pattern of doing this, begins making noises that a Ferris wheel might make while she's having sex with one of the male performers. So it's like clicking noises, like bells and whistles, right? Like a Ferris wheel. And it takes her some time to realize that's what he's doing. Uh, so about, after about 10 seconds, she flips out and she walks off the scene because she, she appreciates what, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is another important, another example of a model who had been sexually assaulted a minor being mocked on camera and being clearly upset about it. Um, like I say, uh, hist without a long-form interview, I can't really include her in the article, but that's another example of something I, I, what I wish that I could have included. Um, again, this, this pattern of really, uh, really creepy, really destructive um, emotional abuse like permeates their work and it also yeah. informs a lot of the... Um, suicidal themes that come come through in the article too that they're taking advantage of vulnerable people who already have a lot of trauma and then re-traumatizing them on purpose mm, it does seem like a tactic to me and um again it's something i've seen used here in europe by the abusive porn companies um like one person when interviewing a model before the scene really tapping into her having an abusive yeah. ex-boyfriend and the thing we were wondering is did she get abused by him because he knew he could because she's been abused in the past is it like almost exploratory um or is it yeah for people that get off on that yes yeah. I, I don't know and even further obviously if you're physically abusive to a woman it's illegal but is emotional abuse legal? I don't know. Um, in and of itself, I don't think so. Like, um, can you just walk up to someone and say, oh, and just start talking about them being raped? Because we just wouldn't do it in any situation, in any other workplace. Right. It yeah. would never come up in any social situation. Yeah. You might call someone a rapist um, as an insult at, at the most, but I can't imagine mm. saying to someone, Oh, have you been raped? Talk about that, and then using it to to bully them. Yeah, it seems so extreme to the point where I just I don't think there's any situation in real life where that could happen. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm not sure. Or maybe I'm being naive because I'm a man. I don't know. <laughs> like you know, like well, I I don't think it's a, it's a criminal offense. I think one um, another concern I have is women like withdrawing consent to physical contact as a consequence of emotional abuse or not being able to in a in a mm -hmm. in a timely way because they're so shocked by what they heard or they can't 
they're, now they're like reliving that trauma to, to in a way that they're no longer able to withdraw consent or sustain consent. Um, that that's not something that's in in the article because it's not something that one of my sources called to my attention. But it was certainly something that I was worried about. Um, mm-hmm. Frankly, it's in the article just because it's so gross. And in the case of Rachel, she explicitly asks him to stop, and he does not. He continues doing it. It's weird how it's the emotional stuff that is the most disgusting somehow. I think I've, over the past four months, I've become desensitized to girls being hurt. But the emotional abuse somehow seems worse. I don't know. It's probably not, but I think I've just heard so much physical abuse over the last six months that somehow the emotional abuse hits harder. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a bizarre thing to say. Um, it's really bizarre. You spoke to a lawyer, so could you tell us about uh, the legal opinion on on their content? Yeah, so um, I spoke to an attorney who's um, barred in New Jersey. Um, this is the state where this took place, so that was important. Um, and he, his law firm, so his name is Derek Smith. He, his law firm is called the Derek Smith Law Firm because... You know, mm-hmm. that's how you name law firms. Um, and his law firm specializes mostly in employment discrimination based on gender or sexual harassment. His personal specialization is more on sexual assault, so he was very helpful. Um, yeah. I provided him the four scenes that I rely on. He told me he wasn't able to finish the first one. The first one he watched, I know, was Bailey Ray. Um, he says, even for someone who specializes in rape cases, I was disturbed. Um he said he was really disturbed, not just by the content of the scene, but by knowing that Bailey Ray didn't anticipate it and that she was high at the time. Um, I would, I described um, the my interviews with him. I said, you know, I provided him some quotes and some context, um, and so he would he would render me an legal opinion based on um, the interviews that we conducted. So, so, a lot of his commentary is relatively short, in part because mm-hmm. he's just a terse man and. Um, in some cases, there isn't a lot to say. So I speak, I tell him about Anna, and he says that this scene definitely sounds like sexual assault. And he says, when you withdraw consent, anything after sexual assault or rape. And very importantly, he said that this applies just as surely to sex workers as it would to anybody else. Um, Clara Bow, the, the pattern of facts in her case are very similar. So he noted that, and he said that it sounds like sexual assault for her as well. Um it was it was important to get a legal source for some of these things, mm-hmm. um, just because phrases like sexual assault or the word rape, they have a, a colloquial understanding that is generally the same, but might vary slightly from person to person, even from um, state to state. The laws are different. Jurisdiction, to jurisdiction, so. correct. Um, but they're also legal words, or they have legal weight. They're crimes you can be charged with. So I, it, it was important for to get uh, someone with legal expertise to comment on it. Um, in the case of Bailey Ray, he was also very clear, um, that he considered it sexual assault. He says, anytime someone has sex with another person or engages in sexual acts with another person who is objectively speaking incapable of consent, such as when they're incredibly intoxicated, um, then there is no consent. Um, and that, uh, is, well, about as clear as it's going to get from an attorney um he says that this was possible rape and avoidable contract and then interestingly he added that this could be a possible case under the sex trafficking victims protection act which is a civil and criminal statute in the united states Mm -hmm. i don't remember why he designated 
Billy Ray's as unique in that way? I think um, there's a new sex trafficking law in the US. And I think even moving someone from one city to a different city would count as sex trafficking if a crime has taken place. I think it might be yeah. something as simple as that. So I, th- I think um, the reason why he said that is because I, I discussed travel concerns in her case that she had moved from Flo- that she traveled from Florida to New Jersey, mm-hmm. and so I think that's why he had that on his mind that she traveled between states. Um, in the case of Rachel, um, the there I don't have a legal opinion from Smith on Rachel, so I'm a bit more um, terse in her case. The reason for that is just because she was my last interview and I interviewed her mm-hmm. after Derek Smith. And um, I think Derek was just kind of really, he, he was interested in taking these cases and he still is. But um, I also think he was personally very bothered by them. Um, I know when I spoke with him on the phone, he was clearly very um, alarmed by the content. And so I wasn't able to get a legal opinion on in Rachel's case. Um, these are distressing him. things to see. Like, um, like you say, even for a lawyer that specializes in rape, and yeah. he will have seen CCTV evidence of rapes and uh, cell phone footage of rapes. But I think yeah. the level of brutality in porn, when the sexual assaults, like real sexual assaults in porn videos, it can be so extreme. And the girl is just having to take it for. A very long time, I think, mm-hmm. like maybe much longer than what would happen in a typical rape case. Um, and uh, I remember watching some of the videos that I, I dug up on a different uh, producer, and it, it ruined my whole Christmas. Like for for three or four weeks afterwards, you know, they're they're just floating around in the back, and if it has that effect on the viewer, I can't imagine what effect it has on. The victim um, absolutely yeah no that's 100 right um it, it i i say like in the introduction if you find this hard to read remember that someone lived which what you're reading mm-hmm. um and that it wasn't something they could put down it was it was something that they have to carry with them for the rest of their life now um and, and i think all cases were really uh really damaged by it i think um rachel didn't indicate to me that she had suicidal thoughts um, neither did Clara Bow, but Anna and Bailey Ray both did. Bailey Ray mm-hmm. explained that she attempted suicide. Um, I had another source that I can't name. I refer to her as Emily. She she died by suicide in Ohio, and she's the only death um, of one of the former models that I include because I, I can say for sure that she died for suicide because she died in the state where death records are often public records. So I was able to get a mm-hmm. copy of her autopsy and her scene was really alarming. She did a scene with uh, black and black crime and black payback. I'm oh, sorry, black and black crime and ghetto gaggers. So she's the only um, black actress in this story. Mm-hmm. And both of the scenes again, so black and black crime is on the West coast with one crew. So she did that first. Then she went to New Jersey to shoot with ghetto gaggers a second time with a different crew. So, you might say, oh, well, if the first one was so bad, why did she shoot a second time? I, I, I can't ask her because she's passed away, but I think the simple answer is probably that it's, it was with a different crew, so she thought it might be different, right? It was with a different director, different uh, actors. Turned out to be not so different. Um, the scene, I mean, without getting into too, too details, was very similar to many of the others. 
what's important is that um in according to our toxicology report she was on two medications both are prescribed to treat depression and one of the drugs is uh, among only two approved by the fda to treat uh, ptsd that's post-traumatic stress disorder mm. um and so of course i can't say that she died as a consequence of the scene uh, i did try to contact some of her friends as well as her family members these were interviews that i also dreaded conducting i, I mean i called her mm -hmm. mom um nobody was able to comment on it um but given the, the pattern of women who say that they considered taking their life felicity feline told me the same one who attempted to kill herself when i find a case um only three years after in which someone did and they were prescribed something for ptsd again i can't attribute causation but it, it's mm -hmm. noteworthy uh, it's, it's something to be aware of that that this did happen and it's consistent with other known facts i'm pretty sure it didn't help to do these scenes yeah that too so um how are the girls doing now did they rebuild their life is it something that's still with them so that's um, a complicated question um all of them still carry a lot of trauma with them that was always evident to me when i was speaking with them many of them you know just openly admitted it they didn't try to conceal it that this is a very painful subject for them mm -hmm. um some i don't want to get too specific because it could be identifying but some of them have moved on in a way that i do find pretty impressive that they've gone on and you know started a family um that they've put this behind them that they're not really recognized for their work um and so it still haunts them but they're able to live you know functionally and they're able to have their life be defined by something else. In other cases, and I'm thinking particularly of Anna, that's really not true. Um, and uh, again, Anna's case is also very difficult for me to talk about. Because um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel like I know her pretty well now. Yeah, I could but see she, she, she's not in to talk about. Yeah, she's not in. The, uh, she's still not in a good place. And I had to worry about her. And I know she doesn't like to hear from me, but I, I still insist on contacting her uh, mm. just to keep an eye on her. No, it's difficult. So what's happened since the article came out? So it's... Um, on, on Twitter, it's bred pretty fast. I got a lot of help from some friends to promote it. My initial tweet has over 100,000 engagements, which was good to see. Uh, it spread very quickly on Reddit. I was trying, uh, Exodus Cry very kindly shared it on Instagram. So it spread pretty far. I'm hoping to get some other people. I'm still in the process. I'll be promoting it all through July. Um, they haven't responded to me directly, which again, I'm surprised by. Um, the only thing that they've really done is to DM random people on Twitter, which is a really bizarre way to respond. I, I think the reason why they haven't responded to me directly is because I think when they were trying to intimidate me, they thought, one, that it might work. Now they see it's not going to work. And two, yep. I don't think they anticipated that I was documenting everything and that mm. I considered it all on the record and that I was going to include it in the article and that any subsequent efforts to intimidate me are just going to end up in a follow-up piece. And so I think that's why they're kind of steering away from me. I still expect to be sued for defamation in some way, you although I, have, I am surprised I haven't received a legal demand letter yet. Um, that'll mm. probably come soon. I uh, had the same feeling after i did mine it's i was like and i was i prepared myself mentally for it but it just didn't come yeah. in, well, in a weird way i want so fortunate it. 
in a oh. weird way, I wanted it because then I could reveal in to a judge all the things yeah. I couldn't show in an article. Right. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, weird, I look weird, forward to that you know. too. If I get sued, I mean, the def the discovery process is going to be very destructive for them. They're going to have mm. to show the tapes of Bailey Ray nodding off during the during the contract signing, assuming that video exists. Um, yeah. If it exists. And the thing is, it's going to be time consuming for me. I'm going to have to find a lawyer who's going to have to work for cheap. So I, I dread that. But it would be, if they do sue me, it would be an inconvenience for me. It would be a, a catastrophe for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if they appreciate that. Um, Donald Bob Fallenweider, the main owner. Just for my communications with him, the things he does, I really need to emphasize this. And I don't just say this because I think little of him. He's an extraordinarily unintelligent man. And he may actually think that he has a case against me i guess time will tell um but right now um we're looking at calling this to the attention of law enforcement exodus cry and i have been talking about organizing a protest outside the studio which we're, nice. i have to think about like when would be a good time to do that and um presumably that would be in east orange but um We'll see if they move in the meantime. And those are like the two main things right now. I know Felicity Feline is very concerned about her her website, her domain name. Unfortunately, I don't know what to do with that. I've contacted a few lawyers on her behalf to try to help her. And her legal options are limited, unfortunately. So right now, the, the, the two main things are like public awareness. I hope all of your... Uh, viewers read the article if you're in addition to uh liking this video and subscribing if you would kindly uh post the article on your social media to help promote it that would be fantastic yeah uh, the more eyes the better the, yeah the more people who read it the more likely it is that someone who has the capacity to act on it will read it so the the more the merrier uh please what's do that, the response but... from the porn industry being uh nothing um Nothing directed at me. I reached out to Kink again for comment. I got nothing. Um, the porn industry, a lot of um, sex workers, interestingly, have responded very favorable, favorably to it, both mm. um, by Twitter DM, by email. I, I know like some sex worker friends of mine who I, I, I shared the article with. So these are women who are like escorts, only fans, models who... Mm -hmm. um, and th their, their opinion means a lot to me. I, I asked them to read drafts to make sure I'm handling the subject delicately. And you know some of the some of the most meaningful positive feedback I got was from them. So the sex workers who I know who have read it, uh, the the article meant a great deal to them. My sources who responded to me said that they liked the article. I know uh, Rachel was very proud of it and very grateful for it, and that that means a lot to me. Mm. Um, but from the industry, like institutionally speaking, I haven't seen any response. Um, noteworthy response yeah. yet. See. Before I started doing these stories, um, if you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, facial abuse are not part of the porn industry. And well, I wonder like, what industry they're Obviously part of they are. Right? Yeah. But um, we have a habit of doing that, of thinking that the people that we don't like, we're like, saying, oh, we're good, but this is something different. Yeah. Um, and yet, we all use the same credit card companies. We all use the same adult billers. Yeah. Um, so I think, and how have you contacted billing companies? Yes. Um, I've contacted SegPay, which processes their mm -hmm. 
um, their billing. Um, other people have done it on my behalf. Interestingly enough, there'd be people who would uh, at me on Twitter saying, "Oh, I emailed SegPay," and I was like, "Okay, thanks. You didn't have to do that, but thanks." Um, so SegPay is getting some emails. I don't know if they're reading them or responding to them. They haven't responded to me. Um, but they, yeah, they take Visa, Mastercard, Discover. I think it's all through done through SegPay. They also take uh, Bitcoin. Um, you, you can pay with crypto. I remember Felicity telling me that they they mine a lot of Bitcoin. That's so all okay. Visa and Mastercard. Gotcha. Okay. I, I know they had an option. I didn't click it, but I know they had an option to take. Yeah, they don't want people to pay with Bitcoin because it's there's no rebilling. Like most of the money comes from people forgetting. <laughs> so it's uh... nice, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So yes, I have SegPay on my mind. I have, I have the billing processing on my mind too. That's a work in progress. Uh, but I'm not going to. Um, I think you, me, and several other people, definitely not going to stop working on this until it's over. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to add facial abuse to my campaign. Um, I'm doing a campaign that's aimed more at the credit card companies because um, it's ridiculous because like SegPay, if we take an example, one of my friends, he has a porn site where um, the girls have sex with dildos that are shaped like tentacles uh-huh. and SegPay banned him from payments because they said it's bestiality, but yeah. they're okay with this. They're okay yeah. with girls puking and being peed on. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, consent violations galore. I'm gonna I'm gonna send them some more emails this week. I'll give you some <laughs> phone calls too. See if I can get someone on the horn uh, from SegPay. Yeah, I uh, noticed um, when I did my campaign, we contacted three of the main adult billers: SegPay, CC Bill, and Epic. Um, CC Bill and Epic seemed to work with the companies to remove any bad content, but they did actually investigate. SegPay, no response to anyone. It's interesting. So, uh, I know I always I met them at events, and I always felt they were a bit shifty. I never really trusted them, so I never did business with them. It was just an instinct, but yeah. I think my instinct wasn't wrong. To be honest with <laughs> you, <laughs> I, I I don't know too much about the inner workings of SegPay. The only thing I really know about them is that they process um, funds for DNA, and I wish they would stop. That's mm. all I can really say about SegPay. Yeah, they don't have to. There's plenty of money, like w- without them. Yeah. I'm sure there is. Um, so yeah, I'll. Uh, any other ad- ad- adult industry stories that you'd like to call my attention and happily work on them? But I'm not taking any stories outside of porn until mm-hmm. until facial abuse is shut down. Until at least a few of them were in prison. Um, I wasn't paid for this. This is just something that's really important to me. And yeah, we're just gonna keep grinding on it until it's over it's 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 more than just the article it's about reaching an acceptable conclusion uh helping you know the victims find justice and that's the the job's not over until that's done did it start out that way because it seems like you're it's become more than just a story for you so um so i mean well it started off just as a a curiosity and as a hunch really that there was something Mm. wrong um i think what really made it really important to me um was just getting to know the models um just as people um and becoming more starting to starting to see them as like friends of mine people or people who i could be friends with mm-hmm. that started to make a personal also the amount of faith they put in me um i did really didn't want to let them down and i still feel like i haven't you know lived up to the trust that they've given me so i, I that's important to me but the 
like just in my interviews with them, that just their like basic humanity was also really evident to me, uh, and so it made their their faith in me that much more valuable. I remember when I called Bailey Ray, uh, you know, we talked about the scene, and the phone call lasted like two and a half hours. And part of the reason why it lasted so long was because, uh, frankly, she was at some point in, in the phone call like flirting with me. She started saying things like, um, "You know, it's such a shame you live in D.C. We could like go out tonight or something." Or I told her I was 26 at the time. Uh, uh, so I told her, like, oh, I'm 26 years old. She's like, oh, that's fine. Like, one of my exes is 26. And the reason why I remember that is just because it just really emphasizes just how, like, just, uh, like, how human she was. Even in this phone call, she's still thinking about, oh, this there's this guy on the phone. Like, I, I might want to date him. And um, But then there's also, like, all this darkness in her story. And so it's just, like, a reminder that these are just, like, regular people who might flirt with someone over the phone, you know, and they they were just, um, so, um, so, so damaged by what, what happened. And they were just regular people. Do you think people care about the story less because it's about porn models? So I was nervous about that. And I think to some degree that probably is true. Um, I was happy to see that that's not, that wasn't true to any large extent. Um, there's a lot of people who expressed a lot of sympathy with them, especially people who are, including people who oppose porn in general. There wasn't a lot of victim blaming. There was mm -hmm. some, but it was very small, very isolated. It, it was a lot of, um, yeah, far more sympathy than from victim blaming. People did not hold it against them that they were pornographic actresses. Uh, that was mm -hmm. very re refreshing to see. Yeah, because the thing I've noticed since I've done mine is that there's been, so far, the only mainstream media that's picked up my story is someone that did the most intellectual version of victim blaming that I've ever seen. Yeah. And it was like, and this was a journalist. It's like, wow. Um, so I don't know, I, I got the sense that if this had happened in Hollywood, the story would have been everywhere. But because it's sex you workers, right about that, yeah. Um, it's like, ah, eh, what do they expect? You know, they're right. selling their bodies. And it's like, they're not yeah. selling their bodies, they're acting. No, they're not. No, I hate it when people say they're selling <laughs> yeah. their bodies. They're not selling their bodies any more than any other employee is. Uh, yeah. Or like in any other you know, potentially. They're selling their time is what yeah. they're selling. They're selling their labor. They're not giving you. Yeah. When they go home, they still have their body with them. Um, yeah. I know I hate that phrasing. And that's part of the way that um, sex workers are stigmatized and dehumanized. And it often comes from people who um, you know, uh, present themselves as being sympathetic to porn stars mm -hmm. and using the phrase selling their body is not sympathetic it's it's stigmatizing it's dehumanizing you would never speak that way about someone else in any other industry legal or otherwise um no i, I despise that the kind of verbiage and it contributes to an atmosphere of stigma against these people which was the main obstacle in my reporting mm -hmm. and it was the main obstacle in achieving justice is that this story could have had potentially a dozen or more women in it. instead there's only four and that was because of stigma yeah i've seen their videos and I think um, it could even be the majority of women had um, consent broken to some degree. Um, we just don't know. But me watching as a porn producer, um, it maybe looks worse to me than it does even to someone that's not in the industry. Because I can see the things where the director's taken advantage or things that are just not really done. Um, so there's so much disturbing in every video. Um, yeah. but I don't know. Sometimes I feel like people outside the industry, like if, if there's forced sex 
in something on Netflix, like say Game of Thrones or something like that, um, there's so much uproar if there's no consequences shown. Um, and even just in general, but if there's rape shown in porn, it's like, oh, it's okay, it's porn. Like, what do you expect? It's porn. They have low morals. And I don't see why we shouldn't be holding porn to the same moral standards as we do any other media. Because yeah, or, or any other we share a society. Yeah. So it's... yeah. Like if, if someone um, was working for a warehouse that was, you know, not following labor laws and someone got injured on a forklift, no one would say, oh, what did you expect? Forklift is dangerous equipment, right? Yeah. No one would ever dream of saying that. But sex workers are seen as subhuman. So it's it's different. Yeah, there is this sense that, oh, you got raped in porn. What did you expect? Yeah. As if yep. that's part of the job. Yep. In a weird way. Or um, the violence. Right, it's because they, the they don't see sex workers as fully human. I'll be reading the comments to, to, for this one. So if anyone wants to call my attention to something, the comment section on this video will be a good place to start. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> they will. I've, things I've heard of, I was like, oh, if they were really traumatized, they would have walked away. It's like, <sighs> yeah. And also, um, I, I don't know this, but I suspect the reason why Wider asked Anna to come back for another shoot. Um, you know, I fired the director. That's not how we do things here. Would you come back? Was so that she he could discredit her and say, well, if it was so bad, why, why did you come back a second time? Mm -hmm. And I know when I was talking to him, he would often emphasize, look, look how many come back. And that's true. A lot of people come back for a second or third or even a fourth scene. Some, I think, even did five or more. Um, I did reach out to some models who said, who did say actually that they treated them well. Um, mm -hmm. It's not as if everyone I reached out to ignored me or said bad things. Some said, yeah. Others would say, yeah, it was a hard scene. It was gross. But, you know, they pay well and, you know, it's a lot of jobs suck, you know, um, which I think is like a begrudging consent. They never indicated to me that they um, felt sexually assaulted. So I got some sources like that, too. Um, so it was. But the thing is, is that them not sexually assaulting or ignoring the consent of everyone isn't really the point. Right. Like if, if one is enough, uh, a few is a story, you know. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a majority. Uh, I suspect in my estimation, uh, based on the videos I've seen, probably around five to 10% of the videos contain, contain elements that are red flags to me. Um, mm -hmm. you may have a keener eye than I do, but they've produced, I think, uh, several thousand videos now. So five to 10% of several thousand is in the hundreds, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's just, my don't forget these are the edited sanitized cuts. You that's see true. Well. Yeah. It's, um. That's it's, what it's what they're willing to portray. And some of the things that they're willing to put in the final cut is also shocking. Um, mm -hmm. The things that they have the nerve to put, um, especially in the scenes that I include, that the models refer to things that are problematic, which appear in the final cut that they could have edited out. Um, so I think that they just um, think they're either they're doing nothing wrong or they think they're just not going to get caught, that they're above consequences for their actions. Mm. It's very sad. Um, well, let's try to end on a positive somehow. So like, I love your passion and dedication. And again, I kind of relate to it so much because I don't know, like so many times since I started this journey, I've almost like questioned my sanity, you know, because it has become like something I've taken on. And I think when you said like you feel responsibility to, to do the story, um, I think that's kind of how I feel. It's like I'm, I can't really put it down now until yeah. there's some resolution, 
you know, either the police investigate and they say, hey, everything's okay. At least I've done all I can. But yeah. some investigation needs to happen from credit card companies, from police, from something. Um, and it's not just facial abuse. This is the problem. Um, it's facial abuse. It's the ones I'm working on. And it's all of the abusive companies. Um, now, most companies are fine. But even the fine companies do have abuse instances with rogue directors, rogue actors, and they'll continue to as long as there's no regulations in porn. Yeah. Um, and I know like in LA, they tried to put regulations in place, but the porn companies just moved to Vegas. <laughs> they moved to Florida. Uh, and I was against regulations initially, but um, now I'm, I see why we need them. It can't just be a wild west. It can't be unregulated because otherwise only money matters. Um, there has to yeah, be some balance. The, um, I mean, the more regulated a market becomes, like the more like legal it becomes, the more um, you can't have a well-functioning market in the industry without basic regulation. And the porn lacks that. Um, we only regulate the finance. We don't regulate yeah. the actual porn. We hide behind free speech laws, weirdly. Yeah. It, I think some of that's just because like it's not seen as real work. So like labor law shouldn't apply. Mm. Right? Yeah, it's not. It's not. So how can you compare being a porn star to being a doctor? It's like... Yeah, like, no, just get a grip, <laughs> right? It's because they're both jobs. And I, I'd have had, I've had uh, some frustration um, with some, like, sex-negative uh, you know, feminists, and including people who helped me out with my research, that no, mm -hmm. sex, work, sex workers work, sex workers are humans, uh, period. And that, that's not, I'm not going to meet you halfway on either of those things. You want it to end on a positive note? Yeah, uh, I th hopefully I, I can come back for a, a part two with a real positive. Note. Yeah, uh, and I can tell you that they'll hopefully be able to tell you that there's there's uh, some justice been done. Hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. For now, I hope so. um, we are working on organizing a protest, which is a small step outside of the studio. Hopefully, later I think that's in the summer. Great. That's really great. So that's in the works. I, I trust you'll help me call that to people's attention because I'll, I'll be worried. It's in New Jersey, so I'm worried about like a low turnout. But we'll we'll see. We'll organize it. We'll we'll do what we can. Um, the best thing your viewers can do is to distribute the article, to, to, especially to people who you think would read it. If you have friends in law enforcement, if you have friends in sex work, the reason why sex workers should read it is because some of them may have facial abuse recommended to them or ghetto gaggers recommended to them by their agent. And now they can read the article and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, especially for younger women who are just getting into the industry, they should read this article. So you can, you can do, do a lot of good by sharing this with any sex workers you may know, anyone in law enforcement may know, or other journalists you may know. Because uh, other journalists yeah. can can spread the article, call it to the attention of their editors. Um, they can publish summaries of my work. They can, you know, I, I'm I'm open to sharing the copyright with different newspapers. Um, so anything your viewers can do, that would be fantastic. Um, to take the link, put it, make it your pin tweet, go nuts. Um, the, yeah. the more people we see, the better. It's really going to take something like that. We just have to get as many people involved as possible. But it does have an effect when when enough people do get involved. It does have an effect. Absolutely. Um, so what happened with Pornhub? So if they can take down Pornhub, surely they can take down Facebook. <laughs> like, yeah. The clue is in the name, guys. <laughs> like, yep. They're not hiding that part. Exactly. I can't even be allowed, believe they're allowed to be called that. Like on Pornhub, you can't even use the word abuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, they actually had some problems with their copyright um, or their, um, their trademark. They uh, it, it goes beyond the scope of the article, but they had some litigation. They tried to get either facial abuse or facefucking.com trademarked and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, uh, which handles intellectual property, 
um, refused to give it to them for a long time because they're like, no, this is profane. And if you don't have a, a trademark, you can't do copyright claims. People could just take your work and you don't you don't have a government-recognized right to it. Eventually, they were able to get facial abuse um, copyrighted. Um, but yeah, it, it took them a few years to, to get that done. They had to do a lot of legal work to get that. All right. Well, um, thanks so much for coming on. And I really appreciate you like sharing the story. And hopefully in video form, we can get more people to see it. And I'll yeah. link to the article. Um, for sure, I know people in the porn industry are talking about it. Um, Good. Usually it's kind of like, that's not us, <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, that that's good. So uh, yeah, um, people I'm do very interested to know what your what your colleagues and peers think of the article. Yeah, but yeah, thanks so much. And like, really, thanks so much for the work. Because like, um, like, I was like, I thought I was going to have to investigate that one as well, and it's just too much. I was like, when I saw you were working on it, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> it's not me against the porn industry. <laughs> yeah. So and you did an amazing job, really. So, oh, thank you so much. Like, thanks for that.